Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We cannot uh, rightly understand your word without your help. We cannot, I cannot rightly teach your word without your help. We cannot rightly hear and receive and live out your word without your help. And so, Lord, we just ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would bless the word that's taught, that you would help me say what you once said, that you would help us hear what you want us to hear, and that it would not just be a motivational speech or anything like that, but, but the truth of the word of God would be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to bring about life change today for your glory and the sake of your name, in Jesus' name. And everyone says? Amen. Amen. We are in the book of Ephesians, getting into chapter 4 today. For the first three chapters, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God being worked out in history. See, through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new, not just for the life of the person, but a new people. See, for someone to be in Christ, placing their faith in him, is to be a part of the body of Christ. Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, and even a new humanity being created in Christ Jesus. And it is a magnificent vision that Paul has been preaching for the first three chapters of this book that we call Ephesians. So Paul moves now from the first half of this letter into the second half of the letter, where he has been doing all of this groundwork, teaching and preaching and proclaiming to the church at Ephesus what we are to believe about God, about the world, about what he accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross. He's teaching all of this rich and deep theological truth. And now, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to transition with the phrase, therefore, and it leads into the next three chapters that are all implications of what it means towards us practically in our day-to-day life. He moves from explaining the way that God has reconciled us back to himself into what is expected of those who, whom he has reconciled. He moves from exposition into exhortation, from indicatives of who God is and what God has done to the imperatives of who we must be and what we must do. From doctrine to duty, from mind-blowing theology to practical, down-to-earth implications of everyday life. Remembering that all of these things he's about to tell us, all of these imperatives he's about to give us on what we are called and commanded to do, he makes sure that he laid the groundwork of who God is, what God has done, and therefore who we are. Because he knows that it only works if you believe. It only works if you have seen. It only works if you have been changed by the truth of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. Otherwise, all the things we're about to get into for the next three chapters just sound and feel like a huge, heavy backpack that must be carried and worn Warn this burden that must be told around because, well, God said so, so here I go doing all this stuff. 
Which is why Paul said, no, no, let's get the, the first thing first, who God is, what God has done, who you are in Christ. And when you realize all those things, then we get to, therefore, therefore, because of all that, therefore, live this way. Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says it, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, there's our transitional word, taking all that knowledge, all that information, all that theology and doctrine and going, therefore, in light of all that, let's live in a manner worthy of our calling. Because you have been called, let's live in a way that's worthy of that calling. And notice the thing that he says about him right there, about himself right here. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. See, Paul shows the value that he places on Christ and on his mission by the fact that he's willing to go to jail for it. He's willing to be in prison for it. In fact, this is one of what's called the prison epistles that Paul writes these letters while he's under arrest. He doesn't write them as he's traveling around going freely. He has been arrested and he writes these letters and he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And so, so what is Paul saying? Knowing that he's about to lay out a bunch of imperatives, a bunch of commands that are going to be difficult they're going to be hard. He's going, before I lay all this out, I want to make sure that you remember, I'm in prison right now for this stuff. So I really, 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 really believe it. Because if he didn't, it's not like Paul woke up one day and said, hey, you know what? Jail sounds fun. What can I do to get thrown in jail? Talk about Jesus? Okay, I'll do that. No, he's in jail because he really deeply believes this stuff. And so he's saying, guys, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And from this position, I urge you, encourage you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. One of the things that we can take away from this, from Paul's own example, is that things being hard is not a good reason to not do them. Something being hard is not a good reason not to do it. I should have made that a point and put it up on the screens for you this morning, but that's free today. So here we go. Things being hard is not a good reason not to do them. Well, you can ask any lady in the room who has given birth, ladies, show of hands, amen, was that hard? Yeah, I figured, I thought it might have been. I was in the room with my wife twice when she did that, and it looked pretty hard. <laughs> Understatement of the ages, right? Looked pretty difficult, looked pretty extremely painful, it's the only way I can explain the faces she was making and the sounds that she was making. Really hard. Worth it? Ladies, give me an amen. Was it worth it? Amen. Yeah. See, the question is not, is something hard and therefore should or should we not do it? The question is, is it important? How much does it matter? Because if it's important, if it matters, every mother pushes through that, that difficulty, even the recovery afterwards. Why? Because the aftermath of the beautiful children that God has given us, 
and the deep joy. And yes, the trials and challenges and, and frustrations and wanting to pull out your hair sometimes, but even still, parenting being hard is worth that difficulty. And we say yes because we know that it's important. And we know that what we get from it and the aftermath of it is so much more important than that momentary pain, that momentary difficulty. And so Paul is showing us, man, you know, not only was he in prison, we can go to the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians and see that he was shipwrecked for Christ, that he was stoned, that he was beaten with rods, that he was whipped, that he was slandered. All these different things that Paul dealt with, he's going, worth it. Why? I got Jesus why? Because I'm helping people get Jesus. And so this hardship that he's in, this deep suffering that Paul experiences, and then these difficult imperatives that he's about to lay out, some things that are hard. He's saying, guys, remember, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I am, I am bearing this burden because Jesus Christ has made it worth it. How many times have you guys ever watched, it's not so popular anymore, I don't even think it's going on anymore, but The Fear Factor. Remember that show where, I mean, who wakes up in the morning and is like, I want to lay in a bed of spiders, tarantulas, nobody except for maybe some super weirdo who we should pray for. And, but these people are willing to do things like that because of the reward, right? And so for us, what is the reward? Relationship with Jesus Christ, eternity with him, right relationship with the Lord makes it worth the cost of the difficulty, worth the cost of the pain. Any parent who's been on a road trip with their kids has had to wrestle with this, right? Like, is it worth it? Road tripping with kids is hard. Hours and hours in a capsule driving for hours and hours with people, with humans who do not understand time the way that you do. And therefore, 50 times in an hour say, are we almost there? Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Please stop asking. Okay, dad, are we almost there? It's difficult. It's frustrating. It has its challenges. Do you not do it? Because it's hard? No. You go, you know what? It's going to be hard, but at the same time, we're going to make memories that are going to last the rest of our life. At the same time, we're going to invest quality time in a way that's going to be profoundly meaningful to us as parents and to our kids. We're going to take pictures of things and we're going to enjoy good food and we're going to do all these different things. It's worth it. And so you do the hard things because they are important. And how much in life, the best things in life are hard, aren't they? The most important things in life are hard. The best things in life are hard. That's why so few people do experience the best things because people just go, oh, that's hard. No, thanks. So Paul, making it clear, hardship is not a reason not to serve the Lord, not to follow the Lord, not to obey. And then he goes from that into this word urge. I therefore, a prisoner, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This encouragement or exhortation, which is, it's, it's a deeply passionate, almost begging encouragement. Like, please, I urge you, I, I almost beg you to live a life worthy 
of the calling that you've received. See, Paul is delivering throughout Ephesians this really masterful one, two, three punch of effective ministry. In the opening chapters, he's teaching, he's giving information, he's giving sound doctrine and theology, he's informing them of the truth, he's informing. Then the second punch, if you will, is that how many times from that information does he then roll into praying for the church, where he starts praying that God would help them understand that stuff, and that God would fill them with the power of his spirit to walk out that stuff and live in light of that stuff. And so he goes, inform and pray and then the uppercut, exhort. I'm begging you, I'm passionately encouraging you with deep conviction, please walk this stuff out. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. The calling that you have received. Now, what does that word calling mean? Because in language and in grammar, there is what is called a semantic range of words. You might have heard of the term homonyms. Homonyms is basically a word that has multiple meanings, right? Like run. You can move on your feet at a fast pace. That is to run. You can present yourself as a candidate for office. That is to run. A machine that works runs. And so the semantic range of run is huge. It's deep. There's many meanings for that word. And the same way that if I said to you, man, I just love fall. Football's back. There's sweater weather. Get to wear some nice gear. Man, we get to get pumpkin everything, I guess. Like the trees, the leaves turn orange and red and green. It's beautiful. I love fall. When I say that, none of you are thinking this dude likes falling face first on the ground. No, the context of the statement helps you understand the meaning of the word. And when you're trying to interpret scripture, the number one foundational principle is that context determines meaning. If you want to understand what a word means in scripture, you've got to look at the context. And a lot of times, this word calling gets misdefined, if you will, misunderstood, because people, especially in modern America, take this word calling and think that it only means like a pastor is called to ministry. Like, are you called to do what I do? And so, but if you look again at the context when he says that, that live a life or walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he's talking to the entire church at Ephesus and even the larger region with this cyclical letter. If we skip ahead to verse four, he said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then there's a dash there saying, here's the call. The one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. So live in a manner worthy of your calling means live in a way that matches the fact that you've been called by God into his family. Live in a way that shows that you have been changed by the fact that you were dead in sin, chapter 2 and have been made alive together with Christ. That if that's true, let's walk worthy of that. Let's walk in light of that truth, that God called us out of darkness and into his light. Let's walk in a manner 
worthy of our calling. See, what we can see from this with the first three chapters, the first half of this book being information, teaching and equipping the church to know the truth of who God is and what God has done and therefore who they are. He then lets this have the implications on the way they live. This shows us that right believing leads to right living. That's why the first half of the book is giving right belief. And then the second half of the book is Here's how you live in light of that. Right believing leads to right living. This is true. You know, every one of us lives and chooses and participates or abstains in all sorts of things based on what we believe. If you've been to the Grand Canyon before, I went there a few years ago, incredibly breathtaking, humbling, just looking at it and just going, whoa, God. And this awe and wonder stirred as I'm looking into the Grand Canyon. And if I was at the, the southern rim of the, of the Grand Canyon and, and as there's the edge, like nobody approaches the edge of the Grand Canyon like, <laughs> nobody does that. How do you approach the edge of the Grand Canyon? At least how I did. Actually, maybe not even that brave. Let's be real. <laughs> Sorry, camera team. Now, when I was at the Grand Canyon, there was no one there saying, thou shalt use caution at the edge of the rim, for if thy approach it disrespectfully, you shall incur the consequences of haphazard behavior and meet thine end. I didn't need anyone to tell me that. I looked and I did this. Why? Because I believe in gravity. Great job, guys. The education system is working. We believe in gravity. Therefore, I approach the edge of the Grand Canyon with caution and reverence and respect. See, right believing about God, which is why we need the Bible, because the Bible teaches us the truth about God. Rather than all the other voices in the world, if you're trying to use philosophy or ideology to determine what you believe about God, or God forbid, your feelings, which lie to you all the time, to determine what you believe about God, you might not learn about the gravity, oh, that wasn't planned, the gravity of your wrong belief that can lead to destruction. And so, we see Paul using those first three chapters to give right belief that leads to right living. See, the truth that we know shows up in the way that we live. It shows up in the way that we live. You want to know what somebody believes? Watch the way they live. Watch what they do. See, not only does he say that this is important enough for me uh, to be in jail, but it's important because of your calling. This stuff matters because the fact that you have learned that you have been raised from death to life. You have been saved by grace through faith. You have learned that God removed the dividing wall of hostility between God and man, and God removed the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles or other people of different backgrounds. And so we see that this is really, really important. Okay, we get it. 
We know it's important. We should live in a way, live our lives, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But how? How do we do that? Let's read on. Picking up again in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And here he says how. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So wait a minute, here we go again. We're going to talk about unity one more time. The text does. You might be thinking, oh, Pastor Stephen, we just went through Philippians a couple months ago, and a ton of that book was about unity. And even Ephesians a couple of weeks ago talked about unity with the Jews and Gentiles, how that dividing hostility between their races and classes and all those, their different beliefs, how that was removed and they were unified in Christ. We already talked, are we going to talk about unity again? The text does. And see, it, what we ought to do is when, when Scripture keeps on bringing these things up over and over and over and over and over, Hopefully, we see and feel from frequency how much this stuff matters, how important it is. He said, let's be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Remember that that hostility that separated God and man and that hostility that separated other men from other people, that he removed and ministered peace, that now we have peace with God. And now we have peace with one another. And so here again, he's saying, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Well, in humility, with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How do we walk in unity? The exact same way that we learned a few months ago in Philippians chapter 2. Through humility. If we're going to walk in unity as a church family, if we're going to walk in unity with other believers, it requires that we humble ourselves and think less of ourselves and elevate others and put, make others more important in our heart and in our mind. To where we in humility, gentle, with gentleness, with patience, meaning don't let things set you off with such a short fuse, but being humble and gentle with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager. That word eager there in my Bible, in other translations, if you have an NIV or some others, they say make every effort. It doesn't say just be eager to maintain the unity of peace. It says make every effort. And we talked about semantic ranges for a moment. The same thing applies for Greek words. That the Greek word that here in the ESV is translated eager in many Bibles is translated make every effort. And the other places that this Greek word, um, I forgot what it's called, tsuritso or something like that in Greeks, 
that word is used multiple other places in scripture um, to say, make every effort to make your election sure, meaning to make sure that you're saved. Pretty big deal, right? Pretty important to, do every, to, to make every effort to make sure that you're saved. Other places where it's using the same exact Greek word there, uh, make every effort um, uh, to cleanse yourself and wash yourself from sin. So that same word that's saying it's important enough to make every effort to make sure that you're saved and that you're cleansed from sin is the same Greek word that Paul throws in here to say make every effort to be unified together. That's heavy. There's weight there. There's gravity there. And so we need to take this pretty seriously. Why? Because that looks pretty dumb, right? Like if I'm up here trying to preach and all of a sudden my body starts fighting against itself to where I slap myself or my throat stops deciding to work for me or if my legs give out, I'm not able to do what I'm supposed to do. And the illustration, the picture that's given here is that we are the body of Christ. It said one body and that Christ is the head. And so when we are not making every effort to be in unity together, it's like me turning my face red by slapping myself or undercutting myself and falling down or choking myself or poking my own eye. You guys would be like, something's wrong with him. We need to help him and pray for him and examine him. And we need to pray for the church and help the church and examine the church when we're not walking in unity. I want to go really quick to Romans chapter 13 and 14. We're going to wade into the waters of the fun elephant in the room as we talk about unity. Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome and starting in verse 11 says this. Besides this, you know that the time the hour, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's saying Jesus' second coming is getting closer and closer. So let's wake up. Let's, let's be urgent about this. In verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. There's that term again, walk. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying, let's die to ourselves. Let's put on Christ. Let's walk in that manner. And then verse four, or chapter 14, he continues with this. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, just go ahead and hit that part. Not to quarrel over opinions. Verse two, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Is it before his own, or it is before his own master that he stands or falls? And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, one person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Here's another highlight and underline if you're that type. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I'm going to say that again. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me, or bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, talking about food. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What do we see from this passage? We see that there are things that we're going to disagree on. And that's why I told you to underline that, that phrase in verse 5 that says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See, there's three categories, if you will, on what we pull from Scripture. There is the first category, things that are explicitly clear. None of us are going to have a legitimate debate on whether or not we should murder. Right? Because Scripture makes it explicitly clear that we should not murder. None of us are going, well, but if you look at the context and the syntax, and if you really step back, and if you do word study on the Hebrew word there, then this guy I could murder. We'd be going, no, you're an idiot. It's explicitly clear. The other category, second category, is things that are relatively clear. It's not explicitly clear. For example, I'm mindful that there are some young ears in the room, so I'll say this in a certain way. Um, Scripture doesn't say that we should not view inappropriate things online. Scripture doesn't teach that. Why? Computers didn't exist. Phones didn't exist. Internet didn't exist. Cameras didn't exist. And so it's not explicitly clear that thou shalt not do that. But it is relatively clear from the opening chapters of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching the masses, and he quotes the Old Testament law saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he doesn't stop. He says, but I say that if you even look at a woman with lust for her in your heart, you've committed the very act of adultery with her in your heart. And so it's relatively clear that it's pretty easy for us to go, that's sin. And we shouldn't do that. 
And so there's things that are explicitly clear. There are things that are relatively clear. And then there's this third area of things that are unclear. Things that scripture does not speak to and where we have to study and pray and try and find theological principles from scripture that serve as rudders, so to speak, that help us determine where we land on things that are not explicitly clear or relatively clear. So what Paul is making the case here in Romans 14 is each of us should do the hard work to study and pray and come to our own convictions. He says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one of us should have convictions. What's the elephant in the room? Here we go. Yeehaw. Vaccines and masks and all of that. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. And listen, according to the context of this Romans 14 here, wherever you believe, whatever you believe is right, you're responsible to God to live it out. To the person, he's talking about whether they eat vegetables or meat or not. He says to the person who thinks that they're supposed to eat vegetables to honor the Lord, they better do it as one who's going to give an account to God. And to the person, and he's saying, like me, who knows that all things are clean and that I could eat anything, I could eat meat, and even in the new covenant, praise God, we can eat bacon. He's saying, for those of us who li- we, we see that truth, we know that, we believe that, The man unto the glory of God, eat that bacon and thank him for it, but not in a way that causes the other to stumble. And not only should each one come to a conviction in his own mind and walk it out because it's sinful for you to violate your conscience, it's wrong, it's sinful for you to believe something and violate it. He goes on to say, for you to look at other brothers and sisters in Christ and judge them for landing somewhere other than where you've landed is also sinful. And you will give an account for that. Now listen, again, there are things that are explicitly clear. That if we see a brother or a sister in Christ uh, you know, who, who's stealing, that's not debatable. It's clear, explicitly clear. So we should in love go to them and gently and graciously try to help them. But on things that are not explicitly clear, listen, Scripture does not speak to whether or not you should obtain or abstain, abstain from medical therapies. Doesn't speak to it. And so each one should be convinced in his own mind. I know plenty of God-loving, God-fearing believers who have the position of, well, I believe that God made my body and I believe God is sovereign and that he cares for me. And so I'm going to abstain from medical therapies because I'm just going to trust God with my life and eat all natural and do all this stuff. And they are doing it like this unto the glory of God and more power to you. Praise God for walking out that way. I know plenty of other believers who believe that medicine is a common grace given to all of mankind, that God is revealing his goodness and his wisdom in providing medicine uh, to, to bring healing to people. Of course, we also believe that God miraculously heals people as he wills. All of that to say, I know people who land on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the argument. Hey, guess what? I know people who love the Lord, genuinely, there is fruit in their life that they love the Lord and they're on the right side of the aisle. 
politically. I know people that there's actually fruit in their life that they love and know the Lord and are on the left side of the aisle. I know people who land in the middle that know and love and serve the Lord. And some of you are going, there's no way that the other side could know and serve the Lord. And what you're doing is actually casting judgment on them. And, and, and we need to be humbled by the fact that one, Scripture talks a ton about believers being in unity. It does not say make every effort to walk in unity as long as you guys agree politically. It does not say make every effort to, to preserve unity as long as you have the same perspective on how the coronavirus should be handled. It does not say make every effort to be in unified as long as every single nook and cranny of your worldview aligns. That takes no effort. It takes none to just get in the echo chamber and go, we think this way, yeah! It takes a whole lot of effort, a whole lot of humility, a whole lot of love, a whole lot of grace, a whole lot of tenderness to come into this room and, and over here and go, I know you think that way about X, Y, Z. I think this way, here's why. But you know what? No matter what, I love you. And you know what? Even though we land in different places on these issues, man, we're both united in Christ and he is greater than these things that divide us. And even though you passionately think that way about that issue and I passionately think this way about this issue, even though we have some difference there, Man, we have both been reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to other and we cannot allow Satan to win by letting these temporal earthly things divide us. He wins when we do that. We look like this when we do that. We look stupid to the rest of the world and we do not testify to the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people of different backgrounds, different classes, different races, different worldviews, different socioeconomic situations, different experiences, and unite them in Christ. When we do not make every effort to walk in unity, each one should be convicted in his own mind. And each person should walk out those convictions should you engage in conversation? Well, as long as you can do it gently, tenderly, with humility, in love, then yes, you should. Should you vote? Yes. Should you participate in all those things? Yes. Should you have deep convictions about all these issues? Absolutely, yes, you should. Just remember, the cross is greater. The gospel is more important. And the gospel touches all of those areas and we need to let the gospel inform our opinions on those things. We need to let the word of God inform our convictions. Don't just go, okay, each one should come fully convinced in his own mind. Well, I feel like this, so there. We let the word of God inform our convictions. Is it tense enough in here, awkward enough in here yet? What did Paul say in that whole passage when he's giving all of this? He says, why? Because we're all going to give an account before God. That's why you should be deeply convicted in where you land. That's why you should be deeply convicted and act out wherever you land. And that's also why you should trust the Lord with where people land otherwise. Because they're going to give an account to God, not to you. You're going to give an account to God. 
And why am I willing to get up here and ride the elephant in the room? Because James 3.1 tells me that I shouldn't even want to be doing this because it means I'm going to stand a stricter judgment. So I'm going to say this hard stuff and hope that it doesn't tick you off. And if it does, just go, well, I'm going to stand before God. So, okay. Ephesians chapter 4, getting back to the unity call. He goes on in verse 7 saying, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 68. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Some of your translations will say he descended to the earth. I I have to just stop here because some people misinterpret this to say that Jesus went down into hell. That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying he descended from the upper regions of heaven to the lower regions being earth. And we can see that also in the next verse where it says, he who descended to the earth is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity, there it is again, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's saying right here, God gave ministry gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Oftentimes we think, oh, that's the pastor's job. That's the preacher's job. The evangelist's job is to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians is telling us, well, actually the minister's job is to equip the saints, the people of God, the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. Not in a way that excludes us. We're like, all right, I'm going to teach you guys go do it and I won't do it. Now we're responsible to do it as well, but this is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And then he goes on to expound on what that work is being to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, again, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, being unified in our faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he goes on to say in the mature manhood that we wouldn't be like children tossed to and fro by every wave or every wind of doctrine. You guys ever been to a water park and seen kids in a wave pool? It's really entertaining, um, especially when they go deeper than they should. Um, not meaning where they can't swim. I'm, don't say, Pastor Stephen wants kids to drown. That's taking my words out of context, okay? But seeing kids go out into the wave pool and seeing like they don't know, and then you see the wave come and skadoosh, and they're like head over feet, backwards, flipping all over. It's funny. You can say it's funny. As long as they don't get hurt, it's funny, okay? That's what he's talking about, that, that when you've matured in your faith and the knowledge of Christ. Right believing leads to right living. When you've matured to mature manhood to the knowledge of Christ, that when those waves come in, you've seen the dad or the man who then goes out and stands seeing the kids get knocked and swayed, and he stands there as a proud man. That's right, I ain't moving because I'm a man. It's actually a really cheesy example of what's being portrayed here. That a man who's mature and strong and bigger can take those waves that were knocking the children, he says, over. Not like no longer being children tossed to and fro by the waves. 
The man can take the ways the way that a child can't. And so as we've grown and mature in our knowledge of God, it helps us stand strong when the waves of Gnosticism come our way. When the waves of agnosticism come, there might be a God, but who really knows? We stand against those waves because we've matured and grown in our knowledge of Christ. When atheism comes, we stand in the knowledge of Christ in the maturity of what we've learned from Scripture. When all the isms come, the one who is mature in their faith is not swayed by them because they know the word of God, which helps you withstand those onslaughts to where we can stand against the deceitful schemes of craftiness. Verse 15, wrapping up here, rather speaking the truth, what? In love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, the head of the body, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that we all have our place. We all have our own gifts. We all fit together with our own uniqueness by God's design to make up the body of Christ. And in order for us to work together the way that my body's working together right now so that I can stand up here and talk and accentuate my words with my hands and my facial expressions, my whole body is working together right now for this purpose. If we're going to do the same thing, working together for God's purposes in this world, it requires humility for all of us to recognize I am just a part. I am just one part of many, not only just, but I'm also an important part 1 Corinthians 12 breaks that down. And we all have our place. We're all needed. And therefore, Paul's saying, remember, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to God. And the first dynamic that I'm going to go into, that walking in a manner worthy of your calling, what it looks like, is making every effort to be in unity with other believers. That's what it looks like. To walk in a manner Worthy of your calling, step one, fight for unity. When you have those different opinions, when you disagree, whatever it might be, when you've hurt each other, offended each other, whatever it might be, go, I've got to make every effort. Paul is contending that making every effort to work together in unity as the body of Christ is walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that your word uh, teaches us, it informs us, it encourages us, it challenges us, it confronts us. And God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to take seriously this mandate, this call, this command to make every effort to walk in unity with other believers, even when there are so many different perspectives and opinions and different things that we might disagree upon. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are higher than those disagreements and that your mission is more important than those qualms that we might have with one another and that you've commanded it of us. So God, I ask you to help us do this hard stuff, recognizing that it's worth it, recognizing that it's important. 
recognizing that if we're going to be successful in this world with your mission, we've got to walk in unity and make every effort to do so. Lord, help us to walk this out for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.